electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today is the Microsoft Activision deal going to come down to Call of Duty. We're going to break down Microsoft's uh, olive branch to Sony today. Is there uncertainty at the top of Salesforce? Stocks at its lowest level since March 2020. Got two key executives recently departing. Later, Binance tries to correct the narrative and two Wall Street firms with opposite tax on crypto, D, and that's not counting what Jamie Dimon said about it this morning. We're going to get to all of that and some more headlines in crypto, but take a look at the NASDAQ down another one and a half percent today. Weaker start this week. And let's start, Mike Santoli, with the divergence in small cap tech versus the mega caps. Yeah, pretty familiar story right now. It is the largest and once most uh, kind of tightly embraced NASDAQ stocks that have been downside leaders. And in fact, you know, the, the NASDAQ 100, for example, did not really distinguish itself uh, as a leadership group, even in this little rally we've gotten or had since mid-October. So this is uh, the S&P tech sector, the NASDAQ 100, as well as small cap tech. Now, this is a pretty small ETF, though, that does track the smaller cap uh, tech universe. And you see it's actually per- outperformed pretty nicely on a one-year basis. Uh, it, it essentially not really had the valuation issues that some of the largest stocks did. It's very hardware-centric. It's a lot of semis. It's a lot of electrical equipment-type manufacturing, so maybe more adjacent to industrials uh, and just less in the way of big Internet and social media stocks. Uh, but you see, that's been a pretty solid trend for a while now. Now, on the mega cap side, though, you're going to be talking in-depth about Salesforce. Take a look at a one-year basis of Salesforce relative to Amazon. Uh, now, that's down a lot lot more than uh, than the Nasdaq is in particular. Amazon has traded a lot more like a cloud stock in the last year, year and a half than it has an e-commerce play. I don't think that's the entire story here. You're talking about big valuation premiums in these kind of winner take most type platforms, but they have revenue growth issues, obviously leadership questions as well. So uh, kind of an interesting little bit of harmony between those two stocks, guys. Uh, Mike, I'd love to know what you're thinking about uh, the financials in particular this morning, because a lot of commentary coming out of the Goldman Financial Conference, uh, uh, Wells Fargo saying that uh, consumer account balances starting to come down. Solomon saying no meaningful. uh, We were hopeful that we would see a meaningful recovery in capital markets this quarter. Not happening yet. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the anxiety is around the Main Street banks, actually, right now, which had outperformed quite a bit. Uh, Comerica with a warning about deposit declines, uh, just really the cost of, of retaining deposits. And just in general, the market for the last two days has been caught up in this idea that, okay, maybe now it seems like the Fed will over-tighten into a recession. So I know that pendulum has swung back and forth psychologically for a while, but that's where we are at the moment, and it's coming out of uh, a lot of the financials, at least uh, on a two-day basis. All right. We'll see how long this pendulum swings, Mike. Thanks. And now let's kick things off with two important earnings movers after the bell, Sentinel One and MongoDB. Both CEOs are going to join us tomorrow exclusively, and both have some implications for other stocks in their sector. D, um, starting off with Sentinel One, 
cybersecurity has been interesting lately, to say the least. Uh, Sentinel-1's down about 25% just over the last three weeks, and that has happened as CrowdStrike and Zscaler both reported these quarters where the sales cycles are longer. The guide was cautioned, and it's had investors questioning whether cybersecurity is as much of a safe haven as uh, a lot of the analysts on the street had been leading folks to believe. This quarter, I think, raises the question, when is enough caution enough? Given that yeah. it's down so much along with the others, does it get a bounce here if it's not worse than the others were? Remember that good enough approach? You know, chief information security officers would have to convince their CEO, CFOs, that that wasn't good enough. You can't just have all of those old systems. So there was this thinking that if budgets are going to be caught, at least it's not going to be cut, excuse me, in the cybersecurity space. But, you know, they're subject to the same pressures as other executives. And you're starting to see that soften a little bit. But, Carl, you know, we've long talked about consolidation in the cybersecurity space. Uh, many analysts that come on, even CEOs, and there has been some movement. But you have to wonder, with valuations now kind of coming down, coming in line with the rest of software, maybe there's opportunity here. Who's going to do it, though? I mean, Microsoft is an interesting one, but we're going to talk in a moment how they already have their hands full with another much larger acquisition. <laughs> Actually, let's turn right to that. Uh, Microsoft's in the news today. They are offering Sony a 10-year deal for Call of Duty uh, to be available on PlayStations if uh, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision does get regulatory approval at Olive Branch, despite Microsoft President Brad Smith's op-ed in the Journal last night on Sony, uh, making them the blockbuster to Microsoft's Netflix. Steve Kovac joins us to break down sort of this analog they're trying to build, Steve talking about how nice it is to stream movies. Wouldn't it be nice to do the same in gaming? Yeah, and, and to be clear, Carl, Microsoft already has that product. They launched it like over a year ago uh, publicly, and basically their vision here is that you can have anything with a screen and an internet connection where you can stream video games just like you can stream uh, movies on Netflix. Now, what they want Activision for and what Brad Smith is making the argument here is that we need more games to make this kind of service more enti enticing to more people and, and broaden the base there. And Activision, like you mentioned, has just key franchises, especially Call of Duty. And as they've worked through this regulatory process, Carl, that we've just heard over and over and over again from Sony telling uh, various regulators in the EU and here that, look, if, if Microsoft is allowed to do this, they're already a huge uh, giant uh, in the technology space. Even if they are third in console gaming behind us, what this will do is give them an unfair advantage by having that huge content library. And like you said, this is important that Brad Smith finally said publicly, yes, we're going to commit to saying for 10 years, and by the way, regulators, they're saying they can enforce this on us if they want. This is the remedy we're going to offer. 10 years of Call of Duty, the same day it launches on our platforms, we'll let it launch on Sony. Now, I can bet you, Carl, Sony's going to still find complaints with that. Well, and but Steve, to, to put this in context, this is really about those blockbuster games, right? right? The, the nightmare scenario is that Microsoft takes the Activision Blizzard library and the, the most important games and says, we're only going to launch these on Xbox, we're only going to launch these on uh, Windows, uh, on Xbox Live, on our own platforms. And this is their way of saying, okay, for a whole decade, we promise not to do that with the biggest game in the <laughs> library. Kind of a show of goodwill saying, hey, we're, we're willing 
to give at least this much, if not more. Yeah, and they're willing. It's not just willing to give that. They're also willing to give up on other stuff like labor, John. So just yesterday, Zenimax employees, which is a division, uh, a video gaming division within Microsoft, they started the unionization process, and Microsoft said, "Hey, we're we'll let them do it. We're not going to challenge it." In fact, the CWA, the union representing these workers, praised Microsoft. How often do you hear a union praising a company? So they're doing all these good faith efforts, like the. Call of Duty situation with Sony and this labor uh, issue, they're saying just to alleviate any concerns that have already been brought up and kind of preempting any potential lawsuit that they're expecting to come out of the FTC. On the exclusive front, though, look, I will just note that Sony also has their exclusives. That's what sells consoles. Sony is the number one leader in consoles because they have really good exclusive games that you can only play on PlayStation. Microsoft does that, too. They bought another video game company called Bethesda, and they're about to launch a, a really highly anticipated game called, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the game, but anyway, it's a space game that they're going to put only on Xbox, and that's angering a lot of people, too. So everyone's pointing their fingers here, but no one is doing uh, adhering to what they want exactly, John. Right. And Steve, it's funny. There's so many mentions of Blockbuster, by the way. Did yeah. you notice that? <laughs> um, I think Brad just mentioned it twice in that op-ed. It's twice, he said, yeah. Sony's as excited about this deal as Blockbuster was about the rise of Netflix. I, I kind of miss Blockbuster. But anyways, um, what objections would Sony have remaining here? Is 10 years in their mind not enough time? How do you think they might would maybe respond to this? Yeah. So the other part of it that they've also complained about is just the, the benefits that this deal does to uh, Microsoft's cloud business overall. So they're claiming, look, we have this unfair, or Microsoft has this unfair advantage in cloud already. Sony has a, a kind of similar service, but because Microsoft just has those chops that Sony doesn't, any any benefit to uh, Microsoft in that space, in that cloud gaming space, is going to be hurtful to Sony. And so that's what they'll continue to focus on. And they, who knows, they may say 10 years isn't enough. It needs to be indefinite. It's interesting, Steve, uh, the, the idea that normally you try to satisfy regulators' concerns. In this case, you're really trying to satisfy a rival's concerns who obviously have a big um, a direct tie or at least an open phone line to the regulators. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just the, the regulators. I mean, look, th there's stuff being brought up in this case from day one when they announced it. First of all, the FTC on the same day announced they're going to go after mergers just like this. You can say it's wrong or not, but this idea that big companies shouldn't be allowed to buy other big companies. On top of that, other concerns from uh, regulators and lawmakers about, like I was saying, the labor issue. So all these other issues like exclusives are being kind of tossed into here. And we're seeing Microsoft kind of give leeway to those because strictly on an antitrust basis, like that's not how these deals are typically judged. But it seems like they may be judged that way this time. Yeah, and it kind of underlines the idea that this is going to have important implications for the rest of the space. If you think you're going to see more consolidation beyond this, what happens now? Oh, everyone's really watching important. it, Deirdre, yeah. yeah. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Great breakdown, Thanks. a resident gamer and gaming expert. <laughs> mean Diamond Crypto, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan see the space differently this morning. The former getting aggressive in acquisitions, buyout, bargain hunting for crypto firms following the FTX collapse while Jamie Dimon, well, he reiterated his bear take on crypto earlier on Squawk with this. Crypto is a complete sideshow, okay? And right. you guys spend too much time on it. And I've made my views perfectly clear about crypto right. tokens are like pet rocks. And, there's, right. and, and, and people hyping this stuff up. 
And all of this while Binance's CZ uh, takes to Twitter to correct the narrative on his role in the FTX fallout. Kate Rooney joins us now to sort through all of this. A lot there. I do want to get to Diamond. But first, yeah. I was looking at that CZ thread. Yeah. Puts all the focus on FTX. What about clearing up some narratives when it comes to Binance? I mean, the whole industry moving towards proof of reserves, yep. they don't exactly have that yet. There's still a lot of shortcomings, audited financials. It really feels like he's using the FTX episode, like yeah. a lot of crypto companies to take attention away from what they're doing. And the FTX episode has brought more skepticism and criticism on Binance. So I think he's trying to defend some of the criticism that's come out, and they've got some of these similar vulnerabilities uh, that FTX had, including its own exchange token. There are proof of reserves, but there's a lot of questions around that and trust in this industry. He is trying to take, still take shots at FTX. One point he made was really, if, if a tweet brings down your company, it's probably not our fault. So he had some pithy words on that. But there are a ton of questions about Binance and the stupidity. They are now by far the biggest global exchange with about 75 percent of global right. trading volume. Yeah, Kate. Uh, so Bitcoin is now at right about 17,000 even, which is um, below 20,000 for sure. And I just I, I take issue with Jamie Dimon's pet rock metaphor here. I think it's more like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Uh, crypto, because there's actually like one little market where these things have a lot of value. You know, you, you people are very excited inside Chuck E. Cheese about these tokens and how many they can get, what they can get from. The problem is when you have to go out into reality, when you have to go outside. And I wonder, is, is the crypto market still inside the, the Chuck E. Cheese? Right. <laughs> That's a, a great analogy, John. Uh, very niche market still. And those within the, the Chuck E. Cheese market to use. Uh, that analogy still see the value. They still talk about, you know, really being bullish in, in the long term. And it's funny to take it back to Jamie Dimon for a second. You know, he made the, the pet rock joke. He's been really uh, skeptical and critical of cryptocurrencies themselves. JP Morgan and a lot of the bulge bracket banks have massive blockchain teams. They've got this group called Onyx internally at JP Morgan. They've got about 200 employees. And so they're spending time making sort of private blockchains in their own insulated version of the technology. So you hear these CEOs talk and they'll always hedge it. They'll criticize Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And they've got a point in a lot of cases, but they will always hedge it and say, oh, but by the way, I believe in the technology because they're spending a lot on it. And thank you for saying that, because that's what I wanted to say as well. <laughs> yes, there's Chuck E. Cheese tokens, there's Pet Rocks, there's Rat Poison, yeah. whatever you will. These are the tokens, yeah. which are hugely speculative, which it's so easy to dunk on. But yep. it's that blockchain technology that Goldman Sachs is trying to pick up on the cheap now in yeah. terms of the companies it's looking at. And that Jamie Dimon once again had to hedge yeah, in that absolutely. interview. But of course, we listened to the pet rock. And that's the thing. If he's watching Tech Check, maybe he would have got the good... <laughs> coverage, you know, on the blockchain technology right. versus, and, and I think all of CNBC as well, not just tech check, yeah. but we've talked about the technology throughout all of this as well. Less so the tokens, all the different kinds of tokens. Well, it's interesting. There, you talk to some of the people internally that work at either Onyx or Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs and their blockchain group, they sort of feel isolated and ostracized. So these CEOs have to be careful not to lose that talent. If they do actually believe in this technology, you know, they can criticize some of the cryptocurrencies. But JP Morgan lost Christine Moy, who was the head of their digital asset group. They've got to be careful to conserve talent and be able to hire. On the Goldman Sachs front, as far as them looking 
for uh, potential deals. Part of this may also be what they call aqua hiring. So buying a, a startup on the cheap and saying, oh, you've got some brilliant engineers that know about blockchain. Right. Maybe we'll buy this company for a discount and then bring in the talent. So you've seen that happen more and more. Which is an important thing to keep an eye on. Not to say that that's not overhyped as well. Yes, yeah. it can be. We're still looking for those really solid use cases, but so are they. Yeah, right. Kate exactly. thanks so much for thanks being with you. us. Carl. Uh, meantime, uh, the president's uh, trip to Arizona this afternoon is coming up next. We'll talk about that. Salesforce trading at lows not seen since March of 2020. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Let's get a check on GitLab. Shares are surging more than 8% after posting a smaller than expected loss. The company also issuing up an upbeat outlook. Revenue of $113 million, grew 69% year over year. As I mentioned, the stock is up more than 8%, though. It has been cut in half since the start of the year. John? Yeah, now let's turn to Salesforce uh, and the departure of Brett Taylor and Slack chief Stuart Butterfield sending the stock plunging. Take a look. Shares now at their lowest levels since March 2020. Uh, it's at about 133 a share. With us now to break down the fallout, what comes next, Cohesity CEO Sanjay Poonin. Sanjay, I, I, the thing that's most uh, interesting, concerning to me about this is the question of the value that you get from big acquisitions. And Quip and certainly Slack, both big acquisitions for Salesforce and Benioff, even if you pay a lot, Part of the argument usually is, but look how long this founder, this CEO, this executive stuck around. They're part of the future leadership and management of this company. They're going to inject innovation. These two aren't, well, Brett stayed along for, for, around for, for six and a half years, so that's different. But Stu Butterfield leaving rather quickly. What does that signal? Uh, John, uh, Deidre, and Carl, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I was, a, I was coming back from a great show at AWS reinventing the security stocks. It's quite a week. Uh, you know, typically as an operating executive, when we do acquisitions, I've done many in my life, you have a contingency plan for executives. It's about the two-year mark uh, at Stuart Butterfield. And, you know, if you can, you get them to stay much longer, but you typically have that sort of two-year mark, and it's about exactly that time. So I don't think these two are related. Stuart, at some point in time, probably wanted to think about what he's doing. I don't know him as well. I know Brett much better. Uh, I texted him over the weekend and wished him well. I think Brett staying there, leaving his loss. But, you know, the one constant about Salesforce that's amazing is Mark Benioff has had this uncanny ability 
to have executives just come in and fill holes. So Lidiani Jones, who's going to fill in the hole uh, for, for Slack, uh, I think she'll be good. And there's many other executives that have you just found a way to fill them. And I think the opportunity is still pretty strong, albeit the growth slowing down in Salesforce. So uh, we, we are about to get a, another cybersecurity report in Sentinel-1 uh, this afternoon. And the, the sector has been beaten down a bit after the reports from uh, Zscaler, uh, and from others. So uh, what do you think is happening here, considering what happened with CrowdStrike, with Zscaler, perhaps cyber not being as isolated as some folks thought? You're certainly at Cohesity operating somewhat in that space. It's like demand remains strong, but perhaps not as insulated from the macro as some had thought. Yeah, you have to take these companies one at a time. I talked last time I was on your show about a month ago about Palo Alto. I think they've got the strongest portfolio they play in network security and cloud AI security. CrowdStrike has got a strong portfolio in endpoint workload security and now going after the security analytics opportunity, they have to really exploit that opportunity and go after companies in that space to increase their TAM. Sentinel One, I'm gonna be watching closely how they work today. They are a competitor of CrowdStrike. So case by case, the Zscaler opportunity, even though their billings growth was down from 50% odd to 37%, their opportunity in that secure access service edge you know, remote work opportunity. And, you know, General Nakasone was on your, on CNBC earlier today. He was talking about ransomware and our focus area on data security at CoECD and protecting people and recovering from ransomware. I do think the cybersecurity category is in the top three rankings of CIOs and has done well even in recessions, but every company has to go and prosecute their own opportunity there uh, to their best capability. Sanjay, good morning. It's Deirdre. Um, I want to come back to Salesforce because they do have such a big, important presence here in the Bay Area. And there's some real questions around what's going to happen next. Not only did they lose a number of important executives this week, but some of their most important engineering talent. It was Butterfield, it was Brett Taylor, but also the CEO of Tableau left in the last week. Um, these guys were critical in attracting engineering talent, sort of the balance to Mark Benioff's amazing sales and marketing machine. Where do they go from here? Comes at a moment when competition with Microsoft is only getting fiercer. Yeah, I think these are all good people. But remember, you know, there is one attractor of talent at Salesforce. I've known Salesforce for many years, been a key customer of theirs at VMware, um, competed a little bit with them at SAP. You can't count Mark out, and he is the constant. He's got Parker Harris there. He's got Srini Telagabrada, who runs engineering. There's a strong team. And he has found a way to attract talent from other companies. He's in touch with both great you know, tech executives at bigger companies and entrepreneurs. So while it's a loss, certainly for some of these folks, some of them had career plans. I think the bigger picture in Salesforce is as you look at you know, the Cloud 100, there's so many companies, Deirdre, that do some small piece of CRM, sales intelligence. I mean, if I name them, Gong and Outreach and Clary and Seismic, on top of Salesforce and Adobe, and you probably haven't heard of any of these companies, I think some of these companies have a tremendous opportunity to build or partner or buy their way into these ancillary on top of these markets on top of their platforms, which still represent a revenue opportunity. Absolutely. Drift, I've been talking to a lot of them. Sanjay, thank you. Thank you, John. As we go to break this morning, I want to remind you to join the CNBC Financial Advisor Summit today. We're going to discuss some key themes of market turmoil, inflation risk, macroeconomic headwinds, all while providing some recession-proofing strategies for all kinds of investors. Just scan the QR code to register. We're back in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. 
impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. In a bit, we're going to check in on the chip sector under some pressure today as the president goes to Arizona. Another big investment in manufacturing taking place in this country. In the meantime, Dow's down 250. Let's get a news update with Christina Partzinevelos. Thank you, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Hate crime and murder charges have been filed against the suspect in the Colorado Springs gay nightclub shooting. Anderson Lee Aldrich is accused of killing five people and wounding 17 others before he was wrestled to the ground and beaten into submission by patrons of the club. For a second day, there are reports of drone attacks inside Russia. Regional officials say a fuel tank at an airfield was hit about 60 miles from the Ukrainian border. Local media show a fire and smoke caused by the airstrike. Russian officials accused Ukraine of carrying out two drone attacks on Monday, but have not said who they believe is responsible for today's strike. And in Georgia, voters braved the rain to cast their ballots in the Senate runoff election. The poor weather could be a challenge for Republican Herschel Walker. Record early voting numbers show an advantage for Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock. Republican voters are more likely to vote on Election Day. Carl, back over you. Christina, thanks so much. Let's get back to the broader market. The Nasdaq's under some pressure this morning, down more than 3% for the week. Our next guest says with continued uncertainty around inflation and earnings growth, investors not quite ready to pay some premium valuations, at least in technology. How should they navigate the volatility? Join us this morning as the CNBC contributor, Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors. It's great to have you back. I know you've been cautious for a big part of the year, and I wonder if you think we just hit some wall of resistance once the S&P got back to that 200 day. Yeah, yeah, Carl, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I would say it's part of that. It's also, if you look at a pretty good trading strategy for, for short-term investors, has been looking with the VIX falls at that 20 range and selling some of the gains there. You usually see um, kind of a, the fall off of a rally at that point. So, you know, investors are looking you know closely at those two items and looking at where, you know, especially with tech valuations are. We've come down, obviously, from 2021, but we're still trading, you know, in tech valuations higher than uh, the rest of the S&P and the rest of the market. So I think investors are still looking at that. On the long-term range, you know, we've talked about it for many times of what you can pick at for the long-term, but in the short-term, I think there's going to be a little bit of a sell-off here. Right. Do you, are you, in net net, are, are you getting ready to sell into any strength we get in Q1? Yeah, I would say Q1, Q2. And a reason being is one, I think tech, obviously, they've done a good job in cost constraints and, and cost control. That's the one thing that investors are looking for. We've seen most of um, the announcement of layoffs, obviously, which are not for not fortunate things happen within the tech sector. It hasn't really brought now past that much yet. Um, so I think that's a positive sign. Um, but if you look at Q1, I still think there's more going down the pipe as you look at how budgets are being made for, for a lot of these companies. And, and I think generally the, still the earnings question is, is in play here. We had you know revisions that are still being revised down. The outlook for 2000 uh, for the next year and especially the tech sector is still to be seen, especially seeing how the consumer does. So I would say it's more of that Q1, Q2 range that it would be pretty safe for investors to start diving back in. 
Delano, uh, yesterday we were looking at IBM versus Snowflake over the last year. A year ago, they were both at about a $100 billion market cap. And since then, which probably would have been surprising to many at the time, Snowflake has massively underperformed while IBM has created a lot more value. Who would you be betting on in the next year ahead? You know, as, as a growth investor, you know, one, you have to look at obviously the difference with them. IBM being that stalwart standard giant for a while uh, was a value, has been a value play for many investors for a while. That's obviously something that's been doing, doing well in 2022. If you look going forward, as I mentioned, I still want to lean on growth going forward. I still like looking at Snowflake. Obviously, the valuations come down into more favorable range and they're going to have to do things to perceive it and grow uh, during a time of, of interest rates being higher. And so that's a, is an area where I would still look at Snowflake being a growth investor. I still think you have to wait a bit, but I would bet on Snowflake um, in, the, in the further term. And part of this narrative has to do with, you know, less so growth at any cost. And certainly some of the growth your names like Snowflake and others have improve their bottom line um, and valuations have come, come down so much is the idea that you would bet on a snowflake um, you think that they are bottoming out some of these growthier tech names Yes, and I think you know they will bottom out. One, you have to watch. We're looking at what the bond yields done. Bond yields have come down, but they're creeping back up in the last five five days. And so investors are starting to flight back a little bit towards safety, and we'll see you know where that plays out in the long term. I do think they will bottom out. I do think earnings and profitability for a lot of growth names that were doing well in 2021 will return. Now, obviously, the timing on when that happens is still to be seen. I think you're, one, going to see a little bit more on the employment data and how that shakes out over over time, how consumers are still spending over time. And just in general, investors getting comfortable with a lot better, more attractive valuations in growth companies that had, you know, we all saw it and we all potentially participated in those valuations in 2021. Now that they're more favorable, it's obviously, you know, a good thing for investors that saw these companies as strong and not just flyer companies that we're betting on to, to dive back into those solid companies. It's interesting. You know, I mean, there's the bull narrative to a large degree right now is that we're seeing some deflation in goods, right? And but wages are sticky. So your your consuming power is getting a bit of a tailwind, which is that the opposite of what happened earlier in the year. And I wonder if that leads you to favor names in tech, at least that are more consumer facing than, say, enterprise. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think, you know, one of the things we saw is, as you mentioned, consumers did spend during the holiday season. But the growth rate of that spending was obviously a lot lower than we had in the past couple of years. Um, and the trend is still being online. So the trend is shifting to online with Cyber Monday having the bulk of those that 210 billion that was spent um, over the holiday season. So I think the consumer facing makes sense. Um, you will have to, you know, we still, we're still seeing wages not obviously not on pace with inflation. That's an issue that I think is going to continue to play out. But consumer, as mentioned by Jamie Dimon earlier this morning, still has plenty of savings. Um, it's still, you know, everyone that there's job openings um, in comparison to people looking for jobs. We have much higher job openings. So consumer is still strong. And I think you see enterprises ratchet back down on costs and kind of tighten the belts while consumer is still spending a little bit. So that would play favor to consumer facing side of tech companies rather than those enterprise facing side. Yeah, yeah. A lot of discussion of the remaining uh, pandemic excess savings, even from the likes of Jamie Dimon this morning uh, on Squawk Box. Uh, great stuff. Great to see you again. Thanks so much. Thank That's you, a lot of support. After the break, Meta warns it may remove news from Facebook. Plus, some employees claim they are not getting promised severance. That story is up next. Back to you.
Meta shares are taking a hit today, down 5%. We've got some headlines out of the tech giant this morning. It's threatening to remove news from its platform in the U.S. That's if Congress passes the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. It's a bill to help news organizations better negotiate with big tech companies. Meta spokesperson Andy Stone writes in a tweet, they would rather remove news altogether than submit to unfair government-mandated negotiations. Then there's the Oversight Board, out with a new report claiming that Meta's cross-check program, which gives special treatments to its VIP users, is unfair and misleading. The board now blaming Meta for prioritizing its own business interests instead of the program's goals to control content moderation. And lastly, as Meta continues the mass layoffs, employees who were part of the company's corporate training program are getting half the severance they were promised. What does that all mean for the stock? We know, guys, under some pressure, uh, significantly doing a bit of a turn after hitting uh, some higher levels in the recent weeks, D. Yeah, none of those individual headlines that you laid out are necessarily positive for the stock right now. Shares are down more than 5.5%. But over the last month, up 27%, John. And maybe the fact that we're talking about social media as a whole, these are the same tried and true problems we've been talking about for years. Maybe that's a positive. We're not talking about the metaverse, um, which I can only imagine is music to your ears, John. <laughs> well, I think Facebook as a core business appears to be okay. It appears to be stable. Maybe it's not growing gangbusters like it was, but frankly, in this market, what is? The issue for investors, I think, is that, I mean, you said the M word, metaverse, that metaverse spending is weighing down the profit coming out of that core Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, engine. And even though uh, there is investment going into things like Reels, it seems to be a relatively mm -hmm. backseat effort compared to trying to create this future platform. That said, the oversight board actually has impressed me over time. Uh, this is not a, a kid gloves ruling on how cross-check worked. Um, it, it has, I think, implications for social media writ large, and I think people are going to look at Elon Musk's actions and Twitter and how it treats people and organization uh, with privilege through partly the lens of the oversight board. And so, Carl, I, I think in a way, um, something that a lot of people looked askance at this oversight board, I think it's coming out with rulings that could have implications for these organizations and for investors. I would agree, uh, especially uh, since we didn't know we, we didn't know what, what a board uh, makeup would look like. Now we know what it's like when there is no board at all. Uh, so people are starting to make comparisons. D, the other thing is the overall mm -hmm. ad market. Paramount this morning, Bob Backish, who we'll talk to in the morning, now sees the fourth quarter coming in a bit below Q3. That's adding to concerns that, in aggregate, mm -hmm. the overall ad market continues to weaken. Absolutely. And you've got Netflix and Disney's ad-supported models coming online, which could take dollars away from the likes of Meta, Google, some others. But in terms of that stock price, John, looking like a value play still. You look at the forward P ratios and it's just so far below. Even a Google's at 20 times forward P. Face Meta, Facebook is at 12. Yeah, be careful, though. You can always spend more. They can always spend more. Yeah. And Still to are. come, <laughs> Taiwan Semiconductor investing $40 billion to build new chip plants in Arizona. Uh, we're going to have more on more that on that and how it could disrupt the competitive landscape. Stay with us. Welcome 
Welcome back. As companies look to cut costs, they continue to invest in new technologies to do so. Cybersecurity remains a key area of focus as well. We asked members of the CNBC Technology Executive Council how their companies are thinking about these investments. Take a listen. Companies that are going to be successful demonstrating relevance, demonstrating tangible value and growing are the companies that are investing in technology. With the proper mindset and the proper talent and culture, technology can be an incredible enabler to ensure success. There also will just be um, a constant ability to innovate in these new areas and really outpace, and that's really cybersecurity at the end of the day, right? It's all about that continued innovation. We're always trying to keep on top of technology, so we're going to look at what does an autonomous vehicle look like? What does it look like to build out a LoRa network and put sensors on? And what we see specifically in cybersecurity domain is that our domain will continue to rise in importance. President Biden traveling to Arizona as Taiwan Semiconductor announces it's going to spend more than $12 billion. It's going to be $40 billion to construct new chip plants. Our Christina Parks has more on the impact. Christina. Well, we can call it, what, made in America with a little bit of help from Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor is actually tripling its initial investment, over tripling, uh, more than tripling, I should say, promising to spend $40 billion on not one, but two new semiconductor manufacturing hubs, also known as FABs, in Phoenix, Arizona. The first Phoenix FAB is already under construction and will produce even more advanced chips, four nanometers instead of the original five nanometer promise. The second FAB will produce three nanometer chips, which really just means faster power efficiency and computing performance. Both fabs are expected to produce at least 600,000 wafers per year by 2026, less than four years, as well as create 10,000 permanent high-tech jobs in the region and 10,000 construction jobs. Apple is TSMC's biggest customer and will source some of these chips from that Arizona plant, lowering its reliance on TSMC's location in Taiwan. Later on today, Apple's Tim Cook will accompany President Biden at the Phoenix Fab for a little press conference. The CEOs of both NVIDIA and AMD will also be attending to discuss their partnerships with TSMC. Keep in mind, though, these two fabs will offer the most advanced chips in the United States. TSMC's Taiwan plant will be producing even more advanced chips. Which is a key point, Christina. Thank you very much. Thanks. Let's stick with chips. Joining us now for more on the supply chain uh, for Semis, Bernstein Managing Director Stacey Rascon. Stacey, do you see this fab in Arizona as sort of a hedge against any kind of China conflict? If you do, is it a good one, considering that they won't be building the most or manufacturing the most advanced chips? Well, I mean, it's, it's a hedge in the sense that I think it's, it's a good thing to diversify the supply chain somewhat, and that's the whole point of the CHIPS Act and, and everything else. At the same time, you have to put these numbers in context. Like, they sound very big. They're actually not very big. So 600,000 wafers a year by 26 is like 50,000 wafers a month. TSMC has, has well over a million wafers a month of installed capacity today, and they'll have even more by 2026. So it's like a low single-digit percentage of TSMC's entire install base, which again, it's fine. Like you got to start somewhere, um, but I just want to like sort of put that in in context. Yeah. At, at, at the same time, you know, it is in in some sense important. You know, Taiwan is, and in an increasingly sort of like untenable geopolitical you know in, environment over there, and 
the world is effectively dependent on Taiwan for leading edge semiconductors. And so you got to start somewhere like any, you know, any any beginning to this, I think, is helpful. And so I think that's 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 the whole point. Right. But obviously, TSMC is still a Taiwanese company. What about Intel? Where is Pat Gelsinger in terms of his plans, his ambitions to manufacture chips also here in the United States? Yes. I mean, he's also building a a factory in in Arizona. Um, He's building a packaging plant in New Mexico. And he's also building, you know, a a complex similar to what TSMC is doing in Arizona. Pat's in in Intel is going to build that in, in, in Ohio. And so the Arizona um, uh, site, I think, for TSMC ultimately can support something like six fabs. I think the Ohio um, a complex for Intel, they're going to supposedly start with two fabs and eventually could go as high as eight. And I think Intel's talked about a $20 billion initial investment. It could go as high as $100 billion over a longer period of time. Um, we're going to see more and more of this. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, like, if you want leading-edge manufacturing in the U.S., there's only three companies that can even try to do it. It's TSMC. Samsung and, and Intel. We've got TSMC and Samsung and, and, and Intel for sure um, building out um, over time what could be large complexes. So, Stacey, what it comes down to, uh, I take it, is execution. Can Intel actually execute at the high level that they're promising with the uh, leading edge semiconductors that they say are going to come out of these fabs? Because if they can, and they're in the U.S., and relatively speaking, it's not a huge supply, so it's not necessarily going to contribute to global oversupply, particularly at those process nodes, then it would be successful. But the the question is, hey, TSMC and Samsung have a track record at doing this uh, on the foundry level, and Intel does not. And and so, for example, look look at who's at the announcement with TSMC today. It's actual customers. And so... This is the important thing. You, you don't really want to have to like dig a hole and throw twenty billion or forty billion dollars in or whatever it is, and then sit around and wait for customers to come well, around. Well, but Intel has um, said that AWS, right, and and Qualcomm, they've thrown in and said that they'll be there. No, 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 they didn't. So AWS is packaging, and Intel's building a packaging plant in New Mexico. They actually do have very good packaging IP. In terms of everything else, we've we've got names in a spreadsheet, right, for Intel. It's like, oh yes. We'd be interested in exploring. And by the way, anybody that needs leading edge manufacturing capacity would be interested in exploring Intel as a source. Anybody would want um, an alternative source of leading edge capacity because you don't have a lot of other sources. At the same time, whether or not Intel can do it, I mean, call me in five years, I, I don't know. But TSMC, if they can build these factories here in the US, they'll have customers to put volume in there, like guaranteed. I, I can, I can, I'm convinced of that. Like you've got Apple, you've got Nvidia, you've got AMD. I don't know who's going to be in this in, in these Intel fabs, like if and when they actually build them. I don't know. Call me in five years. I'll ask you, uh, Stacey, you know, we talk about a lot of things where there's policy-led demand, uh, either infrastructure or the CHIPS Act, is where we find the labor. Do you think that's going to be a material question uh, once this thing opens? Absolutely. And so what, one advantage of doing this in Arizona, and by the way, fighting engineers and everything is going to be tough. And for all the factories we want to build, there probably aren't enough engineers. Maybe, maybe I should go back to this. You know, like 15 years ago, this is what I was doing. So this this Wall Street thing doesn't work out. Maybe I can find a gig in the fab someplace. Um, but Arizona actually does have, they've got already a, a, a lot of clusters there and there are already people there and there's education in there. And, and in Ohio, you don't have that yet. This is why Intel's actually investing money like in the Ohio educational system to try to train engineers and, and operators and everything to supply this. But absolutely, I think there's a massive shortage of semiconductor talent. Like already today, I think it's hard to find qualified people to get into these fabs. If you're going to build all these factories, that is absolutely going to be a, be a critical issue. Yeah. 
Finally, Stacey, since we have you, where are you on the sector as a whole in terms of its investability? Key Bank out with a note recently noting that forward P.E. multiples for the chip sector dropped 55 percent from highs from last December to October. And that is more than the 42 percent downturn during previous declines. Yeah, so that note was from a couple of months ago. And multiples have probably come up a bit since then. The reason is we've actually started to see earnings cuts. And the stocks have actually held in mostly reasonably well in the wake of those cuts. So when earnings go down and the stocks go down, don't count as much, the multiple goes up. That's the part of the cycle we're in right now. I think investors actually would like to see cuts. Usually, usually the stocks are anticipatory. The best time it turns out to buy the stocks is about three months before the estimates bottom. So you want to see them start to come down and you, you almost want to buy in front of the last cut if you had perfect foresight. What's going on right now is, is, is it's not uniform, though. We've had the consumer areas, PCs, smartphones, graphics cards, TVs, those sort of things. They've already cut pretty massively. And I think some some of those are starting to, people are starting to look at those and this sort of like first in, first out like kind of hypothesis. There's other parts of the market like automotive and, and industrial which, which have not cut. And obviously if we go yeah. into a, a big recession, maybe they will. Um, okay. People well, waiting for it now. We'll have to leave it there, Stacey. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate your insights. Stacey Rossman. You bet anytime. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing before we go, and that's Apple announcing Apple Music Sing. It's coming later this month. It reminds you of karaoke. There's good reason. Features allow users users to view lyrics, adjust the volume of pre-recorded vocals on a track. Product doesn't actually remove the vocals, but uses an algorithm to isolate them from the rest of the song. Features going to work on iPhone 11 and later, plus iPad and Apple TV 4K. D. You can imagine the uses <laughs> in basements, perhaps. I will say the Boza household will be using this feature, I'm sure. We just need to pick up a few of those microphones. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, because you have to imagine that Spotify will have to come out with something like this. You have to use Apple Music, Carl. Our audience may not know, though, that John is a very good singer. So I, I don't know if in the Fort household they're going to be using it. And, really? and Carl, with a healthy appreciation of all things music. But interesting. We may have to get... Uh, me and John doing a, uh, maybe some Hall & Oates. I don't know. What do you think, John? Uh, yeah, you know, Dr. Dre and Tupac, also an option. Okay. Got, there's a All whole right. universe of possibilities. Uh, viewers can look forward to that. Uh, meantime, a very busy week continues in the morning with productivity and labor costs. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.